Everyone's excited today. Yeah. Why wouldn't we? David, fantastic Eric day. Swalwell announced. Field is growing. Field is growing. 15? Uh, maybe 16? I thought we were at no, 7. we're at 18. Are we at 18? Yeah. We're at 18. That voice you hear, by the way, is our special guest, Jeff Pollack, who is the founding partner and president of the super strategic communications and polling firm, Global Strategy Group. And Jeff has advised everyone from members of Congress to governors and now currently a candidate for president. He's worked for all of the major committees and also does a ton of work, uh, advocacy work. In 2011 and 2015, he was the pollster of the year. Talk about a good pickup line. Yeah. So uh, Adrian Elrod, who's my super partner in crime, and I are so happy to have Jeff Pollack on The Electables. Jeff, you're our first pollster. Wow. So we're- I'm honored. We're excited to dig deep. You ready to dig deep? Of course. I'm always ready. I mean, that's inherent to being a pollster, right? Isn't it? Getting underneath? That's right. All right. You got the shovel, Elrod. Let's start digging. All right. Let's just launch. Um, So, Jeff, you are, as Doug just mentioned, one of the best pollsters, one of the top pollsters in the Democratic Party. Won an official award for that. Mm -hmm. Twice. Uh, Twice. (laughs) So, you know, part of what we do on this podcast is we talk to people who are um, really, you know, experts in their field to help unveil for our listeners, you know, how certain aspects of campaigns work, right? And so in terms of polling, I think a lot of people understandably are wondering in this day and age with fewer people having landlines, mm-hmm. with, you know, it becoming that much harder to reach people, how does a pollster accurately poll in this type of environment? Yeah. Well, uh, obviously a good question and one that I that I get asked quite a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Um uh, just to to start again, thank you guys for for having me. It's so nice to be on with two very uh, old and close friends. Not that you're, either of you are old, <laughs> but our relationship is old. Yeah, um, we go thank way you back. for the clarification. Yes, right, we've been doing this since our bar mitzvahs together. Adrian's particular, and 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 it was a great bar mitzvah. It was fantastic. Say, as you can tell by my southern accent, <laughs> uh, it was absolutely. Just wonderful. Um, uh, I being a pollster these days is hard, and and in fact. Um, there's this thing I, I in New York um, every election cycle um, there's a big um, there's this big conference the day after the election and it's always this terrible thing because I'm up until two three o'clock in the morning um, watching election returns and the next morning I'm supposed to show up at 8 a.m. for a breakfast uh, that's for one of these public events um, that's what happened in the election and so mm-hmm. 2016 election happens Donald Trump becomes president. I'm four hours of sleep less than that um, showing up to this thing. And the moderator says, so what happened? <laughs> you know, all the pollsters, what 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 happened? And my answer was, fuck if I know. Um, and <laughs> like that was kind of the answer. And truthfully, it took us a while to figure out um, what happened um, and certainly what happened with polling. I think um, my team, we – looked at things pretty quickly and said something is a little bit off and we've got to look at um, uh, what we can do to adjust because polling is obviously um, under assault for all those things that you said, Adrian. But there's there's a lot more than that. Uh, just the reality is, uh, is that people don't want to answer their phones. Um, the fact that people have cell phones is not a problem. We can call you on your cell phone. Mm-hmm. But And for the last couple of years, it hasn't even been hard to get people to do interviews on their cell phone. But now, you know it, I know it. Every 
uh, phone call that you get with a number that you don't know these days, you don't pick up because it's somebody trying to sell you some healthcare product or it's like people speaking to you in Chinese. timeshare. Like timeshare. Website support. Right. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that make it more difficult for us to do. Not even the, again, the switch over to to cell phones was one thing. So I think that the, the future of polling and where things are going is more about multimodal, meaning um, people are going to be looking at using different modes in some sort of combination. That means traditional phone polling. It may mean online polling, meaning using web panels. It may mean text to web, meaning we text people a link. So all these options that are going to come together, and we're going to have to create um, what I call the right cocktail uh, mm-hmm. that works. Um, and figuring that out is is hard, and we don't have a great answer for it. I can tell you that we've been experimenting with this. At my firm, um, we had, uh, and I know I'm um, I'm uh, talking um, for a long time about boring stuff. No, this um, is fascinating. The it, during 2018, my firm set up um, uh, a rogue operation um, that was dubbed Project Maverick because you know if you're going to be pollster of the year twice, you have to super dork it up as right. much as you can. Obviously, so, Project Maverick was a separate team within the firm that essentially did side-by-side research. So if I was doing a race in, let's just say, um, uh, uh, Pennsylvania's first congressional district, there was a secret operation doing um, uh, sort of experimenting with different kind of polling. And we didn't talk to each other. So I was doing it on the campaign side, and they were doing it sort of privately, internally, and experimenting with these different modes to figure out what might work. And so we started doing that um, uh, actually going back to 2016. Then in 2018, we really went forward with it big picture and are continuing to do so because we think that polling has to adapt uh, and has to change with all these uh, challenges that are that are facing the industry. So how do, so you had this black ops team yep. mm-hmm. that was running a parallel operation. Mm-hmm. At the end of the campaign, did you guys – how did you use the how did you use the information? So we came together. They actually we I still didn't know what they did all through 2018. Um, uh, we came together in 2019. They did a, a big presentation and said, here's the various things that we found um, uh, through the different modes. And so this mode of experimentation was this good and this mode of experimentation was better. And uh, the combination was this. And um, we haven't published those results yet because we're still not quite comfortable to say that we have enough data. Um, we did some experimenting in a couple of the races that are going on this year and, and uh, like things we're not even involved with. Like there was a, a very low turnout New York City public advocates race this year because Tish James, the public advocate, became the attorney general. And so we experimenting there. We had no client but just wanted to uh, mess around and sort of mm-hmm. see what would work. And again, we found some things that some things that worked better and some things that didn't. At some point this year, we'll publish and say, here's kind of all of what we think and this is how we're going to move forward with, with polling. Another thing that like just um, that is a problem is the cost of polling is increasing exponentially. And none of us as pollsters, none of us want that. We would much rather do five polls at $10,000 than one poll at Mm $50,000. We'd much rather do a lot more research. But the costs are going up so much that we have to reduce them in order for um, uh, it to work, frankly, and, and for campaigns to, to see value in it. And so all those things, I think at some point this year, Doug, will we'll come and say, here's sort of our conclusion as to where we think things are going. There was a time when online polling, there were, people were very skeptical yep. of it. Um, what's, the, what's your view of online polling right now? So the most 
one of the most reputable um, uh, academics is the Pew Research Center, and they've moved everything to online polling. And we have to explain to people, like, when we think about online polling, one thing um, is a lot of people don't understand what we need, what we mean by that, I should say. Um, so uh, an online poll that most people think of is ESPN has um, something on the website yesterday morning which says, who do you think is going to win, Texas Tech or UVA? And it's 70-30 Texas Tech, um, right? I, I'm making those numbers mm -hmm. up, right? But th those aren't online polls. Those are meant to be sort of like grabbing. Um, those are meant for clicks. Those are meant to, to bring people in. Um, that's not an online poll the way we're timing it. The way we do online polls is through panels, for example, or recruiting people in some scientific way, uh, whether it's through Facebook or Instagram or other means of, of getting people. And we're trying to recreate a statistically uh, valid model, whereas those online polls I'm talking about where you're just clicking, you're going there, those are self-selected. Are the ones that people tweet out? Yeah. Like, should that, I have ice cream for dessert that, or should I have chocolate cake? And the answer is yes, right? To both, to both right? Yes. Always. So A, B, or C. Those C are not both. polls, um, and uh, or they're they're uh, they're meant for a particular reason. Uh, and so I think that what we have found is that online polling has, and we have found ways to make them as representative. Um, uh, as some of the traditional phone polls. There are flaws in them, sure. Not everybody has access to broadband. Um, um, uh, the non-white population is still underrepresented uh, on broadband um, uh, access. And so we have to be careful and make sure that we still have a representative sample. Um, but there are flaws to traditional polling these days, too. We talked mm -hmm. about, you know, who wants to pick up the phone? Um, so there are pluses and minuses to all these things. And the reality is we have to figure out ways to, to sort of get around those, those flaws or adjust to those flaws. But I think that the, um, the truth is the huge increase in costs, the fact that uh, traditional polling um, had appeared to become less representative, all moved to a sort of say, okay, uh, online stuff, there must be a better way to build this mousetrap. Um, and it's still not quite perfect, um, but it definitely feels like we're moving in the right direction. So, Jeff, can you talk about the relationship to analytics that polling mm -hmm. plays? Sort of that symbiotic relationship. How do they work? We had a really interesting one of our first podcasts was with Naveen Nayak, who really is an analytics expert. Um, and a nice guy. And a very nice guy, very smart guy, too. And he talked a lot about how analytics played out in Hillary's campaign in 2016. But can you kind of talk about sort of the symbiotic or the lack thereof or lack symbiotic of symbi symbiosis, <laughs> symbiosis <Yeah>. between <laughs> analytics and polling. Yeah, it, it, it isn't um, quite symbiotic. Uh, and that's something that we all need to adjust uh, to as well going forward because um, both products, both the traditional polling product and analytics product need to work together. Um, uh, and for the last couple of cycles, it's felt far too competitive at times because the reality is the products that we're producing are similar. They are based on um, either calling people or internet models of asking people questions uh, and then trying to use those uh, that data to direct the campaign. Um, and so people can reasonably ask, well, wh why do I need these two things? Well, the two things have, um, uh, have utility together. And what I have seen over the last couple of years is much more integration of the polling and analytics teams, meaning that we're working far more closely together to figure out what does the analytic product and the things that they do, how can they deliver that product um, uh, in a cost-efficient way, um, and how can the pollsters do the same thing on their side? And the pollsters traditionally have been more in charge of the messaging piece of things. What should we be saying? How should we be saying it? 
those two things don't need to conflict with one another. The analytics firms are traditionally doing large samples with small, um, small surveys, meaning a shorter number of interviews. Uh, traditional polling has um, generally been about longer interviews and more in-depth interviews. Those two things can and have to go together. And so, as I said, I've seen a lot more cooperation, frankly, between um, the analytics teams and the polling teams. I think that was driven in part by um, places like the DCCC and DSCC that sort of forced analytics to be a major piece of the campaigns, um, and I think rightfully so. Uh, I was certainly resistant to it at, at first um, because just from a business uh, perspective. This is something that looked like a threat to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't seen it to be. Uh, and we have our own in-house analytics operation uh, at GSG because we realized how much these things needed to go together and should be together. Right, right. Uh, I'm going to ask one more polling process question. Uh, so why are polls this early mm-hmm. on the presidential yep. meaningless or described by so many people as meaningless? Mm-hmm. Now, just full disclosure, uh, Jeff is the pollster for Senator Kirsten Gillibrand's presidential campaign. But, um, you know, we all get this question sometimes, like talk about these the, this poll that came yeah. out that shows Biden at 30 and, you know, Bernie oh at 25. Oh, my God, Buttigieg is 11 percent right, in like, Iowa. What does this so mean? Just, <laughs> I think we know the I mean, but what, what's the why are they meaningless? Well, there are two. There are two. Or are they meaningless? Well, they are meaningless. Um, uh, they're they're meaningless in that all they are is a reflection of name ID by and large. Meaning right. the person with the greatest name identification has the greatest uh, percentage of the vote in in all of those public polls. And so, to some extent, it doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean much. Although, when you do see somebody like a Mayor Pete jump up, um, the eleven percent one that he was was a pretty small sample. But in but in a couple of the polls, obviously, he's popped up, and that's shows that he has sort of caught something, that, that there are people who are seeing him. And so that is a reflection of even his own name ID um, uh, when increasing. They, when do they start to mean something? Well, so the, 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 the second piece of it is just why are they meaningless is because the last three elected Democratic presidents um, have been essentially at zero at, at this stage of the game, whether you mm-hmm. look at Obama and Clinton and Jimmy Carter and like, you know, we're talking about people who were nobodies. Um, uh, when we when we think about the the timeline of the polling, and that's why I think it is sort of more important to say, hold on, it's really early. This really is just a pure reflection of name ID. When they become real, I don't know. In this year, like I could have given you that answer um, in more traditional years where we weren't dealing with 18 people announced for president. Um, I think that we're going to see the debate stage and who makes the debate stage, and then over the coming months, kind of the candidates who rise and fall over that period. Uh, I think that's when it will become a little bit more interesting and a little bit more relevant. The real answer, though, Doug, is something that that you, Adrian, and I know, which is the polls almost never mean anything until people spend money, because money is the thing that influences the polls. Um, uh, and that sounds evil, but the point is that paid communication, when we mm-hmm. pay to talk to people and communicate about who these people are, that's when polls tend to move, mm-hmm. uh, and that's when they tend to mean something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know. To- I totally agree with that. The, the, but they, in some ways, and Adrian is, um, can speak to this too, but the, the debates that are coming up in June, yeah. right, they are – the polls actually mean something. Yeah. Because that is a, a criteria they, for these folks do. getting into the polling. They do, although yeah, – Getting into the debates. Most of the people who are, are – that we're talking about in terms of the uh, running for president, it seems like most of them already crossed the threshold. Um, uh, and so right. I'm not sure it's that difficult a threshold um, uh, for for folks to meet. And so for those who are listening, the threshold is 
candidates have to reach 1% across three national polls two weeks before the first debate. Um, Do you think that's fair? I don't know what fair is, Adrian. I think that for all of us to judge how to figure out the criterion to figure out who to put on stage is a really, really unenviable job uh, for the DNC. And I think they're at least approaching this and saying, look, we don't want what happened with the Republicans where we've got nine zillion debates, a million people on the stage, the, the big, kids table, the kids table. We don't want that. And I and I agree with them on that. Um, I think that the for the first round in terms of what they've tried to establish, yes, I do think it's fair. Uh, I'm a little worried about uh, – look, I'm worried about the, the donor qualification because you just mentioned the 1 percent in the polls. Don't forget that there are people who may qualify for the debate because they get um, – what's the number? 65,000 unique don't. 65,000 donors in 20 states. In 20 states. Well, you know, getting 65,000, I don't know what that means. Like, okay, so you went to some sort of, you you went and got 65,000 people to give you a dollar. How did that number, how did they arrive at that number? I don't know. But again, I think that they had a hard job. Yeah. Um, And so for at least the first round, I I, I think they've done the best they can. The question is what's going to happen in rounds two and three when they start to change those thresholds and how do you keep it fair? Because I do think that there's a lot, look, there's gender bias. We know that the there's there's a great story today that talks about just how much uh, the women are getting more negative coverage than the men. Now I'm taking on my own mm-hmm. candidate for just a bit, but like there's very clear evidence of it. There's very clear evidence when you look at at sort of all the coverage of, of some of the major folks, um, uh, the, the, the kind of slant that there is. And so the Biden, when you look at Biden, Beto, and Bernie, the um, bees, they get the out, have gotten the outsized coverage, and of course they're. There now, maybe that coverage is justified, um, but it, particularly in cable news, which is driving so much of the the, the sort of narrative these days, um, uh, I think that we have to be careful um, and make sure that legitimate candidates uh, for president are not dismissed um, uh, because they don't meet you know whatever threshold. But again, I, I I credit the DNC for trying and doing doing what they can on this one. I think the next round is going to be really hard to figure out. Well, I'm glad you raised that, Jeff, because this the qualifications for the first debate, which is what everybody's been talking about because we've still got a couple months before the first debate takes place, the qualifications for the first debate are only are only for per, permanent it. to that first debate. Yep. Everything's going to change after that. We still don't know what those qualifications first will be. First two debates, yeah. First two days, but yeah. Exactly. Oh, so I, the Miami and then the Detroit. There's a Detroit one, right? Yeah, yes. and, the, and the thresholds will be different for that. Oh, or whatever okay. criteria right. is used will be different hmm. for that. But you're still going to have debates two nights in a row right. with the candidates divided into two nights. Mm-hmm. But we don't know what the criteria to qualify at that point will look like. Gotcha. Um, so I want to kind of switch gears a little bit here, Jeff, and okay. um, ask a random the first question. First part was riveting. You're like <laughs> it's you're very so riveting. excited. So riveting. <laughs> Um, so I think this is a very interesting process that New York institutes in terms of um, the primary process in that the federal – and I could be, get this wrong, but the federal primary is on a different day than the statewide primary, it right? It is, yes. Um, many people are saying that's one of the reasons why Joe Crowley and you know lost because turnout was low and a lot of people didn't realize that they were voting or that that was an election day. I mean, can you talk about as somebody who has a lot of clients in New York who is <laughs> – 
been pulling a lot for folks in New York for a long time and, and, and serving as a chief strategist for many different candidates. Like, why is that? Why would you have two separate elections? Well, well New York's particularly fucked up. Let's like, I mean, how, let's like, why does so New York do this? Up until <laughs> last year, we had three separate dates. Let's not, why, why not just have two? We had three. <laughs> you had the presidential date, you had the federal primary date, and you had the state primary date. Mm-hmm. And the reason is a very wonky reason. Uh, the federal primary date was deemed to be too late um, for military uh, and overseas ballots to get in and then move into the general election. So it was the federal primary that had to move. The state people did not want to move their primary uh, for all sorts of old school political reasons mm-hmm. um, uh, and not move them. And therefore, we ended up with three. Well, now, we thankfully, we're, we're, we're down to two. They fixed that um, uh, this cycle. Uh, Governor Cuomo and the legislature have, have made that change, so there will only be two. But it still is not the president. The presidential will still be on a different day. But yes, if Joe Crowley had had um, had had a high turnout gubernatorial primary the way it was for Andrew Cuomo on his day, for example, the results may very well have been different. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but the turnout was really low. Well, the turnout was particularly low in that district. I mean, we're talking about 30,000 voters, but that's a very low turnout district, period. Like mm-hmm. when you look at their voting patterns before, um, be, uh, it is a uh, um, uh, low income, um, uh, heavily African-American, Hispanic. And um, unfortunately, uh, when you look historically, therefore, lower turnout, particularly in a, in a primary. Um, but that's a place where only 60,000 people had voted in a presidential primary. We're talking about New York, where everybody's a Democrat. It's not a question of, of, uh, right. of partisanship. Um, I mean, I, I get more than 60,000 people who live on my block on the Upper West Side, probably. So um, uh, it, it was particularly low and, and particularly problematic. But again, you know, AOC motivated a whole bunch of, um, of younger voters who had not traditionally voted in primaries. They were um, people who voted maybe for president, um, but hadn't voted in a congressional primary. She got those folks. Uh, And some of the more um, uh, older African-American and and Hispanic voters, particularly in the Bronx, didn't end up voting. Now, was that because they didn't know there was election? Maybe. Um, uh, Do I, part of the the problem being that the, this multi-primary day? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the, for most of the federal candidates, they had never been through a June primary. We, I think it had been the second time, either the second or third time we'd ever had that. And most of them didn't, of course, have primaries. So it really, really was a unique day. None of that to take away from, from what AOC did and, and how she motivated folks, but, um, but it certainly all contributed to the problem. Right. Uh, the New York Times upshot had a yeah. really interesting article today. Uh, and I'm going to, I want to, Pull out an excerpt. Uh, quote Today's Democratic Party is increasingly perceived as dominated by its woke left wing. But the views of Democrats on social media often bear little resemblance to those of the wider Democratic electorate. So you've done a lot of polling of the party and yep. of the general public over the years. Where is the party today? Yeah, well, I mean, the question, it, it, it was a great article, and it's something that we've said to lots and lots of folks, like, stop looking we at We were the talking Twitter about sphere. this this weekend. Yeah, well, it's like the Twitter sphere is not the Democratic Party. Um, uh, that is the truth. But, and here's the downside of, uh, of that article, while that is the fact and the, uh, that, that that is not the case, those who are driving the narrative are the Twitter sphere. And so um, it makes perfect sense that the things that we're hearing about, that woke left that you're talking about, um, uh, they're the ones driving the narrative. They're the ones driving coverage. They're the ones driving things that are going to be covered for, for months and months. That's what the media is paying attention to. And so 
even if the Democratic Party or when you look at the attitudes of the Democratic Party writ large and see something that's different, it doesn't matter because what's going to get pushed for the next number of months is coming out of that Twitter sphere. Um, and so the notion of all these, let's just use the presidentials who are paying rapt attention to every tweet, forget about Donald Trump's tweets, but I'm talking about inter-party, in, in, inter intra-party, intra-party um, uh, tweets makes perfect sense. Um, but the Democratic Party is not the sort of crazed left that Fox News certainly wants us to think. Um, there's lots of moderates. Um, uh, and uh, I think one, one of the things we're going to see in this primary process is once we do get from 20 candidates down to a reasonable number, how does it all shake out? Um, I'm not one who thinks that necessarily just the most left candidate is going to win out of this primary. And in fact, that's not the answer and it's not what happened in many of the primaries in 2018 in terms mm -hmm. of people who won. Um, so we shouldn't take the lesson that it's just like he or she who runs leftist uh, is, is necessarily the winner. Right. Well, and I think the media could learn a lesson. I think I read a stat recently that said this about 7% of Americans are on Twitter. Yeah. And the media treats it like the arbiter of every right. issue that yeah. we are contending with right. as both a party and a country. Well, think about your colleagues and all of our friends. Like, look, I don't use Twitter by and large. I use it for a very small amount. I, um, uh, I read, but I try not to participate too much. But how many of the folks do you know and how many hours – of the people that we deal with all the time who are on it all the time. All the time. And they live and die by they it. They live and, and die by it. And they thrive off of how many people retweet them yeah. and how many people engage. Yeah. I mean, it's it's effective to an extent, but also you can't let it run your life. No, of course yeah. not. I mean, look, I, I say it all the time. I am an amazing dad on Facebook. Um, <laughs> um, right? Lots of frolicking photos. Oh, and everyone is happy and everyone living their best happy. life everyone. on Facebook. It, and as if, it, it's as if I'm present all the time for my children, which of course I'm not. Um, I travel three plus days a week. Uh, and so um, we all have sort of our lives on social media we know are not are not real, but in terms of the, 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 the following every single tweet and moment, Adrian, I think that's exactly right. And we need to take a step back and sort of think a little bit bigger. One thing that uh, eventually we're going to get to is who the hell can beat Donald Trump? And that is the only thing that matters. Uh, it's going to be the only thing that matters. And uh, notions of electability and beating him are going to become important once we get down from 18 candidates or 20 candidates down to a reasonable number. That's right. Um, so, Jeff. So, President Gillibrand, yes, she'll be the one. That was your <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. So, speaking of Jeff, tell us about one of your most cha challenging moments in politics and also one of your most rewarding moments. Um, well, I, I, I've certainly had a couple um, uh, of challenging moments, not the least of which was, was losing Joe Crowley's race um, that we talked about before. Um, uh, Congressman Crowley is one of my favorite people in I politics. I love him. And just, love him. You know, uh, and just – so uh, losing one that you that you believe you're going to win um, uh, and much to the to the media's dismay, Congressman Crowley did know that the race was much harder than people want to say. There's lots of stories that say, well, he's up by 30 points in the polls. Yeah, but he also knew that he wasn't well enough known and his numbers weren't strong enough. All things that if he was sitting here today, he would say. Um, uh, so that was tough. But um, – uh, the, 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 the ones that are always tough are the ones you, the ones you lose. Um, and so going back even to, um, 2000, there was a, I was doing a governor's race in Puerto Rico that, uh, I thought we were going to win. Um, and I was there on election night and we lost. Um, there's nothing like being, uh, in a place, um, uh, on election night where you think you're going to win and you lose. <laughs> and I know the feeling. We've yeah. been there. 
We've all been there, right? Yep. You, we've been there. I mean, you've been there at 16. Um, I was there, unfortunately, in 15, which was actually the first big wake-up call on the Democratic side um, when I lost the governor's race in Kentucky uh, right. for Jack Conway, a race that, frankly, all of us thought Jack Conway was going to win. The Democrats did. Frankly, the Republicans did. Um, and so um, the, those are the things that, w- that we learn from. And that 2015 race in particular, that was actually the first sign that polling um, had a problem in terms of not having enough non-college white people. Um, and if we had mm-hmm. learned the lessons really well from 2015, which we didn't, unfortunately, in time for 2016, but if we had uh, and sort of really kicked ourselves in the ass about it, we might have been more right in 2016 and therefore might have done some things differently. Uh, in 2016, we've we've fixed it for 2018, uh, 2017, and 18. Um, so the, you know the, the the losses where you think you're going to win are are probably the hardest. Um, what was it? The what's the best one? Yeah, has well, anything real... good happened yeah. in your career, man? I You've mean, been bolstered. One of your best moments. <laughs> yeah. I, I love my Two life. Two times. Of... Look, I, I get to work in Democratic politics um, uh, every day, uh, and I get to live in New York City, so I don't have to live in this hellhole that, that you all live in. The swamp. Hey, um, hey. So you know, I I love my life, um, but my favorite stories are, are sort of. Uh, I'll give you two two sort of quick ones. One is. One of my first big wins, which is when I worked for Carolyn McCarthy. Carolyn was um, uh, a nurse, um, a homemaker, um, and her husband had been killed by the Long Island Railroad gunman um, back in 1992 or 93. I don't remember. Um, uh, And her husband, uh, her son had been shot and and severely injured. and she um, was pushed to run for Congress. She'd never been political in her life. She was pushed to run for Congress because in 1994, the incumbent in Long Island, a guy named Dan Frieza, um, voted against the assault weapons ban. And she was sort of grassroots motivated. She had mm-hmm. been a Republican her whole life, as everyone in Nassau County was back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did that campaign start to finish. And you know, she was the f- one of the first real, true advocates for. Um, gun violence prevention and shows you that people do this thing for for a good reason. Um, the others, the, the the not the flip side of that, but you know, I've worked for Senator Manchin uh, for years. I've worked, I did all of Governor Manchin when Joe Manchin ran for governor. Um, I did his um, first winning race and and reelect and and all of his Senate races. Uh, and Senator Manchin is one of my favorite people in politics. Obviously, we're incredibly different. I'm a a nice Jewish boy from New York City. He is uh, not a nice <laughs> Jewish boy from a uh, good Catholic boy from uh, from West Virginia. Um, and we have very different um, personal beliefs on, on any number of things. And Joe Manchin gets elected to the United States Senate. Um, he wins in part based on his sort of very strong um, uh, NRA uh, record, um, A rating from the NRA and, and others. And at some point, he had Senate, a great ad. He had those two great ads, right, where he you. shot uh, shot the cap and trade bill. That's yes, right. And then he shot. Uh, and then he shot a Republican. And this time, that around. was the, that was this time. Yeah, yeah, we shot the shot the the TVAs. What's um, the story behind that? The story behind the shooting the cap and trade ad. Uh, it's it's a long story. I'm ha- I'm happy to happy to go through it. But I mean, the basics were we were we had gone from being up by uh, 30 points in the polls. I mean, Manchin had been recruited to run for the Senate. He had never thought he would run <coughs> for federal office. Um, uh, but when Senator Byrd died, um, we knew that the only person who could win that seat was was Joe Manchin. Uh, and so John Racy, the guy who the Republicans, he was a wealthy guy, um, put a couple million dollars of his own money into the race and, and spent 
all that money saying that Joe Manchin was going to be a rubber stamp for Barack Obama. And they would put this big rubber stamp on the screen with a picture of Joe Manchin and Barack Obama. Uh, Obama certainly intentional, right? Can't imagine why they would do <laughs> such a thing. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, like, our 30-point lead had evaporated. And by the time we got to October, even though people still like Joe Manchin, they began to think he might be a rubber stamp for Obama. And so we're on a conference call at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Like, I remember it really um, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And we're thinking through sort of our options. And we knew we had to do something to differentiate ourselves. And at some point, I burst out and said, why don't we shoot the cap-and-trade bill? And everyone was like, uh, what are you talking about? And I was like, I, you know, Joe Manchin goes out in his camouflage and the orange vest and like goes out to the woods and we put the, uh, put the bill on the thing and <laughs> we go and shoot it. And the media consultant at the time says like, well, Jeff, if you, you know, take a gun to a, uh, to a high powered rifle and, and shoot things, I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm a Jew from Manhattan. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I just want him to go and like shoot blow shit thing. up. That's right. it. Just shoot it. And... Uh, it was obviously a huge success. It was one of the best ads um, uh, of that cycle, according to uh, a lot of folks. And about a week later, we were up by seven points, uh, and we eventually won by ten. Um, but, wow. So that's that's great... why he's the pollster of the year, folks. <laughs> exactly. Uh, twice. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's one of my favorite stories in terms of like just a stroke that happened, um, just something that hit me. But the, the reason I mentioned sort of the guns in, in, in part is – so Senator Manchin is uh, – the tragedy happens in Sandy Hook. Um, Senator Manchin meets with the families of, of Sandy Hook, and they talk to him about background checks. And he says that seems reasonable and goes and gets Pat Toomey and yeah. goes and does Manchin He really Manchin made Toomey. a name for himself nationally on yeah. that, I think, but, because he came out as a West Virginian. But not the NRA. I mean, they've, they took him from an A to an F, you know, in, in, o- overnight. But my point in terms of, like, what makes you proud, Adrian, is you know lots of people who we know, people who aren't in politics who think, oh, all the people who you work for, they're just these self-serving, narcissistic assholes. And some of them are. Um, but, like, some of them are actually in it for the right reason. And that's one of those things, like, Joe Manchin did not do that for political reasons. In fact, he did it to his political detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but he did it because it was the right thing. Um, and that's why I like working for um, for people like him and others. Well, and, and to the point that you just made about that, you know, one o'clock in the morning strategy session mm-hmm. where everyone's, you know, throwing out ideas and coming up with, with a plan that makes the most sense. That's kind of what we live for in politics, yeah. I think, right? Yeah. Like that, those are the most exciting moments when you're trying to take into account the polling, the analytics, you know, the candidate, him or herself, what their views are, um, where you stand in the polls and and, in the race in general, and then trying to come up with a plan that actually keeps you alive and keeps you going. That's right. Look, Adrian, I work for some of the most progressive members of the Democratic Party and some of the most conservative. And so you can look at that in two ways. One is that I have no moral center, which is possible. (laughs) Um, Or it's that my job job is to elect people in different places. Uh, My job isn't to elect me all over the country. My Mm -hmm. job is to elect people who reflect their communities. And um, and I love that job, and, and I do think it's, it's fun and, and fantastic. Jeff, what is Donald Trump's biggest vulnerability? 
Uh, well, it's not that he's an asshole. We know that, right? Um, if we if we keep going on that, um, uh, we're we're destined to to lose. We have to figure out something that is different than that. His vulnerability um, may very well be his hubris, though, which is that he doesn't learn anything from the past. He thinks that all the things he thinks that just because he lucked into certain things, he should go back to it. So, for example, I think his notion of going far more hardline on immigration um, uh, is going to bite him in the ass. Uh, I don't think it helped in 2018 in terms of national stuff. It helped him in some of the red states. Uh, but in terms of winning um, uh, the, the election writ large, uh, it also served to give the House Democrats some of the greatest margin that they've had ever, like literally. We won by um, uh, the largest um, vote margin in, uh, in terms of midterms uh, ever. So I think that that – I think his notion that like he – he knows it better than everybody um, is probably his biggest vulnerability. Now, his biggest asset is the economy. And if we as Democrats um, don't uh, spend enough time assaulting Donald Trump's vision of the economy and showing people how it is not benefiting them, then shame on us uh, because we'll lose if we do that. We will lose if we um, uh, do not present a vision on the economy. I believe that that's the reason we lost in 2016. Um, uh, we can have lots of arguments about why we lost, but there's too much data that tells me that we did not make an economic argument that was persuasive, uh, particularly the middle class. So if we ignore that, to our peril. 2018, everyone's all happy as Democrats win. Well, guess what? Midterm elections are referendums on the president. Presidential elections are referendum on the economy. And so we've got to think about the economy, focus on the economy, and make sure that we are presenting our vision versus his vision, and making sure the voters uh, in this country understand it. So, Jeff, one final question for yeah. you before we wrap up. Sure. You, as we've noted several times during this podcast, you are working for Senator Gillibrand. Yeah. You are her chief strategist, pollster, whatever your I title is, yeah. like basically guru. like guru. the guru, right? <laughs> um, you've been working for her since 2006, right? Mm -hmm. When she won. Yes, I've also known her since I was 23, so yeah. Well, I and I I've, I worked at HUD with her mm -hmm. a long time ago, 1999, 2000, kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. um, give us a snapshot of what she's like in a, as a person. Well, um, so when I was 23, um, Kirsten and I became friends in New York City doing democratic politics. She was um, work, and we were both, uh, I mean, I was doing it professionally. She was doing it as a um, uh, tr uh, trying to recruit people, help people, fundraise for people. Um, but we were both in sort of a young Democrats um, circle. And, and one night I, I remember actually coming home and telling my wife, um, uh, about this, this woman, I was like, she's just a star. Like you got to meet her. And my wife at some point is like, okay, like you're getting a little too, like, I was like, no, 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 I promise you. <laughs> Your wife was like, like, what are you talking was, about? I was like, you know, honey, 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 sweetheart. <laughs> um, Kirsten is, um, I, I, I love working for her. Um, first of all, she is what we, what professionally speaking, um, uh, many of us love an ideal candidate and that she believes that she hires some of the best people and she lets them do their jobs. Um, and the candidates, I, I've seen far too many candidates who are ultra micromanagers these days and it's just to their detriment. Um, my favorite candidates to work for frequently are military candidates because they understand chain of command and they hire the best people and they let them do their stuff. And so Kirsten has some of the best team around her and uh, and I know that's not who she is but I think it's a reflection on on who she is mm -hmm. and her ability to, to sort of trust people and, and find some of the best people um, uh, in politics she's incredibly competitive um, like really competitive um, I, <laughs> I remember know. this yeah. fundraising it was always her and Ron Klein who were sort of you know out 
fundraising well, even, raise the most this cycle. Yeah, and and uh, Rahm Emanuel, who was her uh, head of the DCCC the year that she first ran for Congress, you know, he, Rahm was like, forget this district. This is no way. And Kirsten was like, no, I'm going to show him. Well, I was I'm there that cycle. Yeah. And I remember this very right. well. We were not, it was not even on the, on the map really nope. for us until she convinced, and I'm sure you were part of that persuasiveness too. It was her. <laughs> it was her and and her ability to raise money and but also her ability to just compete like she she just has this drive um her nickname in college was um and i i didn't go to college with her um uh she went to dartmouth um but her nickname uh, on the squash team was elbows uh, for the competitive elbows <laughs> and the sharp elbows um and i think that competitive nature is again something that's driven her in the united states senate like when she gets an issue like don't ask don't tell or um, uh, or the 9-11 health bill, these bills that have been deemed to be dead, she just takes them and fights fiercely, fiercely, military sexual assault. Um, and so I, I just, I, she is my, I, I love working for her. I think she is um, uh, competitive but kind um, uh, and whip smart. Um, and I think she'd be a great president of the United States. Fantastic. Jeff Pollack, everyone. Thanks the for man, the myth. <laughs> Not Thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Truly my pleasure. Will you come back? I will. I, I'll, I'll be your, your 50th pollster. <laughs> no, we want you to come back around the first debate. Sounds good. Let's do it. Okay, fantastic. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. For Adrian Elrod, I'm Doug Thornell. This has been The Electables, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>